Welcome to TA1, everything you want to know about adventure racing and some. I'm your host, legendary Randy Erickson. My co-hosts are in the basement to hear a little background noise. We were down there. Um, since I am a single parent for a while, while Paulette is working in Washington State on the ocean, and apparently having a really good time, good on her, um, we go down there, and then when I'm done, I crank up the stereo, and I listen to hard rock, and have a little screaming, and I get rid of them for a little bit. But eventually, the chili dog will be here, and probably have to go banyo. So, anyway, that will be what the noise is in the background. Not a lot happening this week, so... I don't really have anything to talk about. So, yay for you guys. You don't have to listen to me very long. Anyway, this week is David Bogle and Team Vignette and part of our Primal Quest Meet the Teams. So between PQ and Cowboy Tough coming up, we're going to have a lot of meeting the teams. But... Um, also hope to get in a couple of other maybe uh, race reports. So there, that's what you get from coming in the next few months. So, so that's enough, right? You don't want to listen to me. You want to listen to somebody interesting. So enjoy. Go fast. Take chances. Thanks for listening. And uh, thank you again. Kind of do appreciate you guys listening to this. I probably, maybe I say it, thank you for listening, but um, it kind of makes it worth it. Oh, I did have one thing to say. Cliff White messaged me from uh, from Spain, said he was on the bus, the transfer with all the racers, and he said the majority of the uh, racers on the bus had been on the podcast. So that's pretty cool. I don't get to be there, but... Um, that sort of makes up for it. So, all right, that's enough. Thanks for listening. Uh, enjoy. Bye. Hello. Hey, Dave. It's Randy Erickson. Hey, Randy. How are you? Ah, uh, good. You don't good. have to have you don't have to have your video on. You need to have to see me. <laughs> no problem. It just I think it just does that by default when I hit that answer thing. So. I think it does. It also I'm not a not a tech guy. I'm not a super Skype user anymore, so I uh, don't remember all the latest settings. I used to use it a lot, but these days I don't use it anywhere near as much. Yeah. It's, uh, it always amazes me when I talk to somebody halfway around the world and it sounds like this. <laughs> yeah, that's what I used to use it a lot for was all my international travel. Now uh, all these cell phones have much more attractive international plans for the most part, so I, I tend to use Skype a lot less unless I'm in a couple of countries that don't have good roaming plans. So, okay, what do you do? You get to travel around the world. I'm, I'm an engineer for a company based out of Louisiana, so uh, I've been with them for whew, 24 years. So we're a global company, so I spend a lot of time going from here to there. What what kind of engineering or do you have to uh, tell me and then kill me? No, <laughs> it's nothing that secretive. I work in the food manufacturing industry for a company, and I do – Mechanical engineering is my background, but I, uh, I'm i the head of our research and development engineering for new products 
uh, within our company. So I've got engineers stationed kind of around the world and work with products and processes around the world. So um, my our company is U.S. based out of actually New Orleans, Louisiana, which is where I'm sitting right now in a hotel. Ah. And uh, we have manufacturing and engineering facilities around the world. And one good thing is I'm in the business of food, and that's one thing people tend to not do without, even in times of recession. They still like to eat. No, that's that's true. So are you engineering machinery for food to, to uh, process food? or I understand this has part, nothing to do with adventure racing, but no. I find it interesting. <laughs> no, I, I spend the bulk of my time working on parts of machines or equipment that impacts processes. So I spend a lot of time on equipment, let's say, that freezes chicken. So – Everybody likes to go to the grocery store or, or Sam's or Costco and buy a, some chicken. A lot of that chicken was frozen when it was first manufactured and thawed out at the grocery store. So it's about uh, a lot of our equipment, let's say, for instance, freezes that chicken or those bread or that dough or those peas or those carrots or things like that. So I spend a lot a lot of my time more recently in, in the freezing aspects of it, but we also spend a lot of time just uh, in the whole process, anything from – uh, you know, making bread from the dough to the final packaging to, uh, you know, hamburger meat or fruit and vegetables or ready meals or pizza manufacturing. So we make pieces of equipment and we make products to move products around. So, uh, for instance, like conveying systems, people make a can of Coke and you say, oh, just move it from here to there. But when you're making three to 4,000 cans of Coke a minute, You've got to have a very automated way to move things around. And so that's what my company does, and that's what I work on. Well, that's kind of cool. So when they show <laughs> when they show those uh, videos of how it's made, you're the you're the guys that make the stuff that moves all, all the stuff that, they make. That, that's exactly right. That's a good thing. So I usually should start with that. Have you ever watched the show How It's Made or Food Factory or one of those? And my company does a lot more than just food. We're also yeah. industrial movement and packaging and everything else. But the area that I focus on is really food since I like to eat a lot. <laughs> so do you, are you um, go around troubleshooting or designing or figuring out what they need? All, all the above. So okay. uh, I spend time, me and my groups typically spend time trying to figure out what the next big thing for our company would be. Then we go off and develop that. Then we put it in the field and implement it and spend you know the first year of its product life troubleshooting it, getting it fully ready for market, then we start over again. So that's kind of what I do a lot of. I've worked in just pure new product development. I've worked in sales engineering and field troubleshooting, but now I just I like just doing the engineering and research of, of new products. It's a lot more fun. Yeah. So I'm assuming you went to school to be an engineer and then how did That's you, right. How did you get into the to the food engineering? Well, it's kind of a, a, a strange story. So when I was in college here, and I, I grew up in the greater New Orleans, Louisiana area, and when I was in college, there was a company locally that was looking for college interns, and so I got a job there to make some money and get some experience, and they offered me a job out of college, and I said, great, I'll take this job for now, and I'll get a real engineering job later, and uh, well, I've been stuck here ever since, so... It just kind of evolved from there. This company has grown uh, about at a 15% growth rate every year, and I've been there for 24, 25 years. So they've been very successful. 
See, that's almost like my story. When I graduated high school, like, oh, I'm going to do construction for six months and then go to school. And that was uh, like 40-plus <laughs> years ago. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I told my parents, don't worry, I'm going to get a real engineering job sooner or later and not just be messing with food and cans of Coke and beer. But, uh, yeah, I'm still there, and I've made a career out of it. So, you know, you never never know. I, th- I thought engineers had to work for Ford or Chevrolet doing you know, uh, that sort of work, but, uh, I never have switched over. So where's, where's the coolest place you've got to go for work? I guess the coolest place I've ever been is the Island of St. Kitts. Uh, certainly one of the more enjoyable places. You ever heard of that Island? Nevis, St. Kitts down there. It's just North of Brazil. Um, it's a British Island, but, uh, it was a there was a brewery that makes beer starting up there, and we had sold some equipment into there, and they wanted an engineer on site there. But uh, as is typical for many island and sort of developing nations, their schedules were always delayed. So I got to spend almost a month there, and every day it was we're not ready for you. So I'd go to the beach. <laughs> That's not a bad gig. Not a bad gig at all. I will say that. So yeah, that was I don't get too many jobs like that, but I wish I had more like that. All right, now we'll we'll segue into adventure racing and, until we come okay. back to it. So where's the coolest place you've ever raced? I've only ever raced in the U.S., I think. I don't think I've ever raced outside the country, but certainly some of the highlight areas that I have raced would be, uh, um, I, I guess uh, I did a race out in the deserts of Nevada. The deserts don't sound exciting, but it's certainly a different terrain Um than I'm used to and normally see. So that was quite interesting and beautiful. And then I did one in in Park City, Utah many years ago and just got to see some incredible views from up top of mountains there. Not not too shabby places either, though. I covered one race down around Vegas and was, yeah, it's just, it's different from what we're used to, I think. Yep, yep. Okay. Um... Hey, let's here. Here's an interesting idea. Why don't you tell the people who you are? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I, I'm Dave Bogle. I am one of the team members on a, an adventure racer team, mainly based out of Texas. We call ourselves Team Vignette. It's a name that's just been around with this team for many, many years. Because back in the dot com era, a company called Vignette sponsored us. They were so kind to the team that we just kind of kept that name forever. Hmm. Um, I guess uh, we're all in our mid to late 40s typically on this team. We have, oh, a half dozen or so people that we kind of just rotate in and out, whoever's available for a race. Uh, and I've been adventure racing for probably 15 or so years now. I think the Eco Challenge, like many people's story, saw that on TV and said, ah, I need to try that one of these days. So it's so. I've I've always wanted to ask this, and, and I hope you have an answer. But there, are, to me, and to antidotally, there are a lot of engineers in adventure racing. It, it, why? Yeah, I think adventure racing is a sport that works with the mindset of engineers. So triathletes, and I'm not at all in any way bashing triathletes typically don't have to think or strategize about a course or learn a course or a map or a tide chart or an elevation thing. 
they just go out and as long as they're physically fit, they can follow cones and, and do the course. Now, that may be oversimplifying it with nutrition things and paces, but I think engineers really like it because we typically are spatial thinkers like that. And so looking at a topographic map, there's a lot of information there, and that's exactly the kind of information that engineers like. So I do see an overwhelming number of engineers and the adventure races that I do, and uh, it's a lot easier to communicate with these people because we use a common language, uh, which is typically science or math-based, which is a whole lot of, of adventure racing. So for yeah. myself, I, I really don't care about sprint adventure races on marked courses. I am, you know, If it has navigational or strategic opportunities, that's when I'm in and that's when I'm happy. So, yeah, but civil engineers are always faster than electrical engineers, right? Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I'm a mechanical engineer. We think we're the fastest of the bunch. So, yeah, yeah. until somebody proves you wrong, you are. <laughs> oh, and I've been proven wrong plenty of times. <laughs> so, who who else is on the team, and and do you know who's going to Primal Quest? Uh, we do. So. Who else is on the team? Is our team captain, Marcy Beard. She is one of the actual founding members of Team Vignette. I came along a few years after they had already started. Um, Marcy has been racing for many, many years and has done some eco-challenges, Primal Quest, and many, many other races. Uh, um, she's a very accomplished ultra runner um, on the women's ultra running circuit, but she will... Uh, pick up the bicycle and paddling so she can come to adventure racing too. So she's our team captain, and for this year's team, we actually do have two women on our team. The the, the second lady's name is Leslie Ruder, who's a, uh, I guess, a, a very accomplished mountain bike and road biker out of Austin, Texas, and she has been on some very fast adventure racing teams that have competed at Primal Quest mm-hmm. and other big expedition races in the past, but she's uh, willing to race down and race with us since we've been knowing her for so many years, and I think she wanted to get back out there. Um, and our final member, is uh, he's actually new to me uh, and new to Marcy, but has raced several Primal Quests with Leslie in the past, and his name is Tom Turley. He's actually based out of, uh, out of Colorado, so we, uh, I personally don't know him very well. We just met for the first time in person this past weekend on a on a team training trip we all did together. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. I, I actually I have met Leslie. I, I'd say I know her, but she was at Primal Quest Badlands, so I met her there. And then yep. I, I don't know Marcy, but I was looking at her Facebook page, and, and my picture, or picture I took is her cover, so I guess I'll, I'll say <laughs> I know her. <laughs> I think that qualifies. Yeah. That definitely would qualify. It's always one of my favorite things. Somebody, I get a friend request, or I'll be somewhere on there and i'm like oh i know that picture yeah <laughs> so, but yeah it's the same way here you know i i used i say i know a lot of people from adventure racing but i they wouldn't know me on the street but you, yeah. you get in the context of a race or something and uh you, you actually do know a lot of people out there yeah. so what year did you start racing I think it was around 2002 or 2003, somewhere in the early 2000s is when I think I did my first adventure race. Um, I was working for this company in Louisiana. I used to live in Louisiana. I, I now live in Texas, but uh, there was a uh, co-worker of mine who actually owned and still owns an adventure race company out of Louisiana, and he was just a co-worker, and he convinced me to come try this one weekend with him, and we did. And that was kind of how I got started back then. So, 
And uh, how was how was the first experience? How was, your, how was your first time? <laughs> the first time was good, but certainly quite overwhelming. I think it was a relatively short race, but you know, doing something for three or four hours when I the longest thing I had ever done in my life, probably before that, was a five k or something, um, was quite a shocking. You know, it was just so different uh, being lost, trying to read a map. Um, you know, not having the right equipment, not really knowing what a camelback even was back in those days or a hydration pack. So very, very different. But, you know, I, apparently I liked it and I'm still doing it uh, many years later. So I, I guess it, it stuck to me. Well, that, that, I've, I've said this before. You, you go the first one and you love it or you never we never <laughs> hear of you again. So. I, th- I think I think we're also uh, at least a lot of engineers and people like me are always looking for something we can be competitive at. I'm never going to be a competitive runner or cyclist or paddler, but in the adventure racing scene, when you combine all of these things combined with navigation, I actually can be quite competitive, and I think that also drives me a great deal. Also, is you know, hey, I can do well at this if I just put all these pieces together. So. You're kind of, would you would you consider yourself like a plugger? Just you just okay, decent at everything. You have, I mean, what do you have yeah. a weakness? No, I would say I'm pretty decent at everything. My big weakness in all racing is heat. Even though I live in crazy hot Texas, uh, uh, extreme heat gets to me uh, as the older I get. You know, I. I can't handle running many, many miles when it's 115 degrees on the course. So that's my biggest weakness. But other than that, I'm pretty well balanced. I run fine, I mountain bike fine, and I can paddle just fine. So no no issues there. And I'm also commonly the team navigator. So pretty well-rounded. I'm certainly no expert in any one of those. How did, how did you learn navigating? Because... Well, it was uh, by necessity, really. So the early teams that I raced on with a variety of people, we spent more time lost um, <laughs> and completely frustrated. And it's really just not a lot of fun in adventure racing when you're just totally lost and can never find a checkpoint. So yeah. um, as an engineer, I do what we do. I bought a book, and uh, quite literally I learned to navigate by reading a book. Um, that was certainly the start um, after I got lost at – Yet another adventure race. I bought this book. I read it, then started attending orienteering meets and progressively getting better. And then racing with people that were good navigators and constantly asking questions. So why are you doing this? What are you looking for? So I, I think many people could learn to navigate if they just paid attention and and got involved with navigation during races. Well, I think that's true, but it's like, well, let's just find a good navigator. That's easier than finding a checkpoint. It, it, it is, and I have actually raced with people that are far better navigators than me, and I just don't have as good a time if I'm not participating or helping in the navigation. So you, you never have a chance to uh, get the feeling poorly or in an expedition race, you know, fall asleep while you're doing something if you're busy navigating because it, it occupies your mind, not just the physical aspects but the mental aspects. So. Even when I'm not doing prime navigation, I always want to stick my nose in things. So do you – I mean that makes sense because you're, you're really involved while you're navigating. But do you know when it's time to say, here, take over for me for a while? Oh, a- absolutely. So when you can't 
figure out on your compass which way is really north or south, and you really need to uh, give it up. And and quite honestly, I've raced with navigators who would never admit that they're not thinking straight, and we just get more and more lost. So I try to keep cognizant of that. And if I'm doing a sprint or a, you know 12 or 24 hour race, I can do 100% of the navigation all the time. But going into anything much longer than that, then I always need to make sure that we've got a competent backup navigator. And we typically so. On my team, we typically split all navigation up, even though one person could easily navigate a 12 or 24 hour race. So, for instance, I will do all the bike and paddling nav and we'll let Marcy do all the foot nav just so not one person is doing all the nav. Um, and that way we find we stay sharper. So if I'm on primary nav, she'll be doing secondary nav and or vice versa. So do you try to get, let's say, the other two team members – involved also so that everybody Absolutely. gets a little so we, we, we try to get everybody involved as possible certainly we have more successful rate races the more we can get involved so for instance uh leslie likes to pace count whatever reason i think she just likes to count numbers in her head so it's like okay we need to go you know half a kilometer leslie so keep an eye on that and so she'll certainly handle that or if we're biking or something you know we'll have everybody start marking off distances or looking for certain things hey we're looking for a we're looking you know for a, a jeep road coming in so the more people we can get in involved in the navigation the better off we are you know if we cross a creek we've gone too far and you know in the heat of a certainly a shorter race or at night you can certainly pass things up so the more eyes you have looking the better off we all are yeah so you guys so you're bringing in a new teammate and you've had so you've had one training session with them how long do you think it takes before you actually get somebody fully immersed in the team so if, well, you I, know, I, I think it's you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, I, I absolutely know what you mean. I think the, the first Primal Quest I did was 2006, and this was a team of myself and the female team had raced together multiple times. But the two guys, we basically met uh, when we got to Utah. Mm-hmm. We had met them once or twice other times, but it was a very painful learning experience trying to learn how people are when they're tired or what they're really like on the course or their goal. So for this year's Primal Quest, I, I only agreed to do it with if I had the ideal team. Um, unfortunately, one of our team members had to drop out due to a long-term injury, and so we really struggled with whether we should drop out of the race. And then Tom came along, and he has raced with Leslie many, many times, and, and we've raced with Leslie, so he came highly recommended by her. So it's going to be a struggle. You know, we... I'm not going to see him when he's five days into a race and maybe food bonked and sleep bonked. So we'll have to deal with it. But, uh, you know, it'd be great if we could have trained and raced together for a year when it comes to expedition level racing. But we just don't have that luxury this time. Yeah. Well, who who does, right? Right. Well, you know, it's it's easy to race with just about anybody for, a, say, a 12-hour race. Yeah. But uh, life changes when you don't sleep and you haven't eaten and you miss your significant other or whatever else it is so the good news is is he's well battle tested uh like the rest of us so we all think we've got very consistent goals and i think a lot of it is is simply communicating your goals with any prospective teammates and make sure everybody believes those goals so communicating have, have you guys are you doing like um 
weekly team calls? You know, do you have more training sessions, weekends lined up? How are you? How are you well, handling that? Yeah, so so three out of four of us, all the ones of us that live in the Austin, Texas area, we pretty much train together every weekend. So okay. it's trying to get Tom into that, and so. Unfortunately, he's 14 hours away by car, so it's a yeah. bit more difficult to to get him as integrated. So we we are not having weekly calls. We certainly have every couple of day email exchanges. Uh, you know, it's so much easier now with online gear lists and spreadsheets that we can all share, uh, etc. Um, we will probably schedule a few more group training sessions, but. Unfortunately, with everybody with busy lives, we can't do it every weekend, especially with the distance we have apart. Well, that's true. How how did you guys find teammates in 2006? <laughs> that, that was a real challenge. So I think we were posting, and I think back then Primal Quest had some sort of teammate finder or something going on. Uh, there was some website, I, f- I forget which one it was, there's been so many adventure racing websites that have come and gone out there, and that's that's how we hooked up with a couple of guys um, that I raced the 2006 race with, it was just some, some message board or something, um, and they said, hey, we want to race and we can get some sponsorship money, and we said, yeah, we're in too, and let's do it, so... Yeah. But it was, de- it was definitely a harder... Harder oh. back then. <laughs> much, much, much harder. Now everything's electronic. You can get results and see races. And, you know, with some of these online tools that where the YouTube is following racers, you can actually see people and how they race before you ever met them. So it is certainly so much easier today. Unfortunately, there's still not as much awareness to adventure racing as I'd like. But, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly easier to find teammates that are already into the sport. Yeah, that's – that. Definitely um, is part of it there. So, what um, what's your guys' goals for Primal Quest? We would like to finish as a team. That's that's really our only goal here. Finish as a team. Um, nobody dropping out. We have no aspirations trying to win or place extremely well. We have all set goals to cross that finish line on the full course within the allotted time with all four of us. That That is our goal. Um, yeah. We actually are a extremely competitive team in the Texas adventure racing scene. But, you know, these are all 24-hour or less races, which, uh, you know, you can be a great sprint racer and it does not translate well to expedition racing at all. So what... Um for you, what's dumb question, but people are used to it. What's the difference be, between a twenty-four hour race and an expedition race for you specifically? What are there things you have to do different going into yeah. it during the race? I think you really have to pace yourself and take care of yourself exponentially better. Um, certainly, well, I'm not young any longer, but. When I was younger and first started into this, if my nutrition got messed up or if I started getting, you know, uh, an achy knee or sprained ankle, heck, you can push yourself through it 24 hours. To most people, that seems crazy that you could, anybody could push their body for 24 hours, but it's not as hard as people think. You keep yeah. moving, but you can't do that over and over. You have to have a sleep strategy. You truly have to have a 
food plan to get enough calories over and over. Certainly at the end of almost every 24-hour race I do, I'm in a serious calorie deficit. I'm typically dehydrated or you know, some sort of a electrolyte imbalance because at the end of that race, you just don't care. You say, I don't want to eat any more packs of gel or electrolyte pills. In three hours, I can get a darn hamburger or something. Yeah, I know that. Um, do you have a, a go-to food buried in your pack that you don't share with anybody? I, I, I really don't. Um, I, I In shorter races, I'm trying to carry the lightest, most compact thing with very compact calories. In expedition racing, I like to have a huge variety available to me. I don't want to eat, you know, for instance, I, I couldn't see myself eating packets of gel or goo or anything like that more than a day. And then I'd be so sick of it, my stomach would revolt. So I really like to have a wide variety. And you know, our team is pretty close, so we typically think of each other's food as our food. So yeah. somebody pulls out a bag of pretzels, it's everybody's bag of pretzels, uh, et cetera. So we try to all share, and it really does help mix up the, uh, the the food varieties and tastes so nobody's getting burned out because in obviously in team sports, if one guy is not eating good and he's crashing, the whole team is going to slow down. So it behooves everybody to feed each other as much as you can in an expedition-type race. Yeah, I understand that. Um, I think I think this is a universal. But if you have potato chips with you, do you want chocolate and vice versa? <laughs> <laughs> well, you always want something you don't have. Yeah. Uh, the worst thing is is to be traveling with another team and they pull out I don't know, you know, peanut M and M's, and it's like, oh gosh, I'd do anything for that. And then you split ways, and you know they still have some. Um, Absolutely. That's why I think having a wide variety, having something salty, having something sweet, having you know something else, uh, just so you can try to fix anything you have going on or satiate any craving you have, is always important. You know, I mean, uh, for me, certainly a full, you know, a stomach with food that I like is makes me a much happier person. You know, I don't want to be dreading trying to force another three or four hundred calories down. A couple of us have a real go-to staple, which many adventure racers use, called this uh, a powder mix called Spiz. Um, it's just a high-calorie chocolate or vanilla powder, and that's always a go-to backup if things aren't working. But I really do prefer solid foods in longer races. Yep. Are you uh, very, very willing to stop at the uh, whatever restaurant's open when you walk by? Uh-huh. Absolutely. In an expedition race where I'm not trying to win, uh, if I can, you know, one of my fondest memories of the Utah race was going into a Denny's in the middle of Moab and, you know, eating an obscene amount of food. Uh, I absolutely am into that now. I'm, in a 24-hour race, you're not going to get me to stop at a convenience store for a water, even if I'm dying of thirst. Yeah. Um, but in longer races, 100%, we will be stopping at uh, at a Burger King if we find one on the route. And is there anything more disappointing in life when it's closed? <laughs> That's a pretty sad day when you pull up to a to a restaurant and they just closed or they don't open for an hour. What do you do now? So uh, yeah. I, I think we would all make the decision to move on unless we just really needed sleep or something. But, yeah, uh, yeah that is a sad, sad time. And, you know, that's kind of one of the, the bummers of an unsupported race. In a supported race, your crew can always have, you know, a pizza or something from the last town they went through. And so an unsupported, you don't have those niceties. Well, that's kind of an interesting because you're old school enough to have done some supported races. 
which do you, which would you like better? Um, you know, I'm I'm I I do really like the non-supported race for logistics, um, fairness of playing fields. I've raced, you know, in the same races as uh, you know Nike and some of the other huge sponsor team. They have these massive RVs that pull up, and they're all in there in a hot tub and in a bed, getting a real rest. And I'm sleeping in a tent or the bed of a truck, so yeah. you know it, it is nice for everybody to have a relatively level playing field. But it's also nice to have, if you really need something, to have a support crew that can help supply it or get it for you in the next town. So you know it's got its pros and cons. But I still think I would take unsupported over supported any day. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I asked that question and I realized that I've I've never been to a supported race. Wow. <laughs> Well, because I started, you know, I started covering adventure racing in '09 at in ba- Primal Quest Badlands, and you know that was it, yeah. There just they, hasn't been any since then. They're definitely less and less uh, these days. So, uh, which I think is good because it's an, a huge extra cost yeah. to have a support crew there, and then you can truly spend way more money on support crews than you ever do on the race. You know, if you want to have an RV or nicer places to sleep plus flights and everything else so yeah. it adds up quickly i understand why race directors don't do it yeah um okay have you ever had to uh rollerblade in a race <laughs> yes i sure have <laughs> and uh it's never been a good experience for me yeah that's one uh one discipline you don't want to see come back right that that's one i do not ever want to see again i was always a very poor rollerblader and I spent more time falling over than I did upright. So, uh, um, you know, on flat ground, I was just fine rollerblading. But it seemed like every race that I entered that had rolling rollerblades were going up down big hills. And uh, I was no good. I know a lot of the races uh, that I did later on in that, people were revolting. And they started allowing two-wheel scooters instead of rollerblades. And yeah. I'm certainly yeah. fine with that. I don't mind scooters or kick bikes. It's just the uh, the rollerblades were... I don't think I'm coordinated enough for that. So yeah, I was. I could. I could never skate anything in my life. Well, I could skateboard, but I could never roller skate or rollerblade. So yeah, they can go bye bye. Yes. Why? Um. Why did your team decide to, you know, for lack of a better term, come back to Primal Quest? Well, I, I think. You know, I haven't done an expedition in a few years, and really none of my team has, um, I guess, in a few years now. And we all have talked about it, if we could get the right team and the right race organization to do it. So last year, Marcy Beard, or two years ago, she volunteered at the last Primal Quest, was very impressed with the organization how they ran their races and had nothing but good things to say. And at the time, she said she would certainly do one of the races they brought it back. So I think that was a very big deciding factor. I have done some races with race directors whose idea of a race is to see how much punishment they can dole out to racers. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's make you carry your kayak over a mountain because it's hard <laughs> and it makes you miserable. There's no purpose to it. Um, And then there's race directors who really want you to have a true experience and go and see things. And that's the kind of race that I want to do. I'm not uh, a Navy SEAL. I'm not here to punish myself to the edge of a collapse. So that's not what I'm after. Yeah. Well, I think you're coming back at just the right time because there's been a a run in the last three, four years where 
it did seem like, well, you know, at, at Worlds in Costa Rica, they literally did make him carry the kayak over right. a mountain just just because. So. Yeah, and those are the kind of races that I will never sign up for. So these days, and other than a local race, and we know all the local race promoters, and even some of those we tend to not do because they're into punishment. Um, we will never do a race that people say, oh, you're going to be miserable. You're going to love it. Well, if they use the word miserable, I'm probably not going to sign up for it. You know, I, <laughs> I'm really about the experience. I've got plenty of other ways to be miserable in life, so I don't need to go pay to do it. Yeah, well, and you've you've been there, been there, done yeah. that too, right? I, I have done that, yes. So, all right, let's well, see. That segues segues into my stock question fourteen. What's the uh, best and worst six hours you've ever spent adventure racing? Oh, I guess the worst <laughs> six hours would almost certainly have to be when I did Primal Quest in Moab, and we were. Uh, in one of these canyons that was 120 degrees and the course was out of water and they were waiting on water drops. So uh, just overheating and dehydrated, that certainly had to be the worst time, but there was nothing to do other than continue to march on, um, just severely dehydrated. Mm -hmm. That was certainly the worst and, boy, the best. There's been so many bests out there. I still tell people that my absolute favorite part of adventure racing is seeing things that – 99 plus percent of the population will never see and my number one favorite thing is seeing all the stars so i live in cities you go outside at night you'll see a few stars you get out on the top of a mountain in a deserted part of adventure race and look up and there's more stars in the sky than you know even a movie can predict so those are the favorite hours of most any adventure race i do is in the middle of a night when the stars are out and you can see them all yeah i uh I hear you there. I I have the advantage of living in the woods, literally with no neighbors. So we get we get the stars every night. But there's still something about being out, even more in the middle of nowhere, and, yep. and it's just like that's a lot of damn stars up there. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I'm always amazed by the number, and you know I shouldn't be surprised. I've seen them hundreds of times doing a night adventure race, but. Uh, I always tell people I don't care what's going on. At some point, we're shutting off these headlamps, and we're going to spend 30 seconds looking at the stars, and it's worth it every time. Yeah, it's true. And you did um, follow the typical adventure racer that your worst your worst moments came up immediately, and you had to think about the best ones. So it's <laughs> yeah. almost universal with that yes. question. <laughs> I, I imagine so. We all can think of times of severe misery. So is there? Do you have a favorite discipline, and is there one that you would be like, if I never have to do this again, it'd be okay? I I really don't. Certainly, I'm glad we don't rollerblade anymore. Yeah. I was just terrible at it. It wasn't that it was miserable. I was just terrible at it, and it was, you know, I'd spend as much time running down the road in my socks carrying my rollerblades as I did actually using them, but... I have gone back and forth. Usually whatever I'm doing at the time is the most miserable thing. So, you know, if you're trekking for 36 hours, you say you never want to trek again. You just want to be on the bike. But if you've been on the bike for 24 hours, you'd say, I just wish I was in that darn kayak. Uh, so I, I I really like all the disciplines. I have gone from being very strong in any one of them, depending on what I'm training more. So I've been a very strong cyclist or a very strong paddler or a very strong runner. Uh, trekker and you know I, they kind of oscillate back and forth. Now I try to stay a little more well balanced, but I don't 
loathe any one of them, but uh, I guess if anything, I'm I, I enjoy probably biking more than anything. Yeah, yeah. As an ex as an ex cyclist, I will accept that answer. <laughs> Do you when you for training? My shorthand is: Are you a, a heart rate guy or a what's over the next ridge guy? I definitely am, do not train with heart rate monitors at all. So uh, I've never gotten into that. Um, just haven't. So it's much more. I, I, I train less and less these days, just because it takes me longer and longer to recover. So I try to get some good solid training in and. What I try to do is if I'm really training hard, I try to race myself into shape. So mm. I'll sign up for as many races as I can between now and Primal Quest and uh, just kind of basically race myself into shape. That's a, a good way and a fun way to do that. Yep, yep. How Somebody else is planning the workouts all the time for me that yeah, way. Yeah. How do you um, – what am I trying to say? How much do you think – racing for 15 years helps you as a racer i think it's pretty huge in that you know if i get the feeling sick or in a longer race depressed and want to quit with experience you know this feeling is going to pass and so i think a lot of people will get discouraged they'll drop out of their first few races and i've dropped out of my share of races in the past because you don't understand always what's going on um, so I think that really helps. It also, if you've made a horrendous navigation decision, there's no need to quit or give up. Just correct it and get going. And, you know, if it's a long race, you you're, you have the ability to make up the time or, or finish it. You know, the worst thing in the world is quitting and then Monday morning you're sitting at your desk thinking how how terrible it was to quit this event. So I think the the more times you've had with experience in this, the better decisions you are. Now races – there's very little in a race that scares me any longer. I'm not overly nervous or anything else, and I think that's all from experience. So, yeah, it's it certainly certainly having all those uh, ten thousand hours of racing under your belt, right? Yep, yep. Get the ten thousand hours one way or the other. <laughs> so, so as a mechanical engineer, this is the perfect question for you. What's been the best advance in equipment? in the last 15 years? Wow. Best advance in equipment. Well, I I, I would guess maybe headlamps. Mm-hmm. That's not probably the most common answer, but, uh, you know, if you're talking about running or trekking, there's no advancement there. You can get a little bit better shoe or something else. But, you know, it used to be you had to carry all these batteries uh, with, uh, you know, basically incandescent bulbs and halogen bulbs that were just massive energy hogs. And you barely had any light at all. Now you have these incredible headlamp torch lighting systems that can run all night long and weigh virtually nothing. So I would say that's one of the best advancements. Sure, there's always lighter, faster bicycles. But uh, I think with the lightest bicycle in the world, if you can't see in the dark at night, you don't get to go very fast. Yeah, that's um, actually my answer also. I I can remember riding at night using a five-cell mag light. (laughs) <laughs> with, on a mount that I made out of plumbing fixtures. <laughs> I, I've got. I used to follow some of the earliest adventure race websites, and they were exactly that. Take a mag light, and you duct tape it to your handlebars, and you yeah. turn it on when you need it. And it was, you know, it's hilarious. You know, I <laughs> I recall racing with one of these. I forget what they're called. Those big square lantern batteries. Oh um, yeah, the, 
yep. those huge flashlights because that was the only thing that could put out light for a couple of hours at, at any brightness level. So I couldn't imagine anybody carrying something of that size any longer. But uh, yes, I, I think certainly that to me is the number one advancement and they're always making even better advancements. They just bought a new lighting system now and there's probably a better one available already today. There is. Well, you know, it, it, and batteries. I mean, that's really where the where the growth is. I think with lighting systems is. Yep. You know, you got a battery the size of a, you know, two inches long that's going to run you all night. So. Yep. Yep. We used to have batteries that took an entire water bottle cage up, and they still only lasted. I've got some of these older, you know, even the higher end night rider lights. The batteries would weigh massive amounts, and you could still only get an hour and a half or so out of them now. Yeah. We've got lights that will run all night long on a couple of AAA batteries, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's one thing I'm a little jealous of because I go to a race, and with all the crap that I take with me, I've got like 10 different battery systems for uh-huh. different cameras and laptops yep. and then drones. And it's like, uh, oh, first world questions. First world questions for old timers, I guess. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Real problems we have to deal with, you know. Yep. All right, we're going to finish this up maybe, but I've been asking a hypothetical question. How, how do you? How are you with hypotheticals? Oh, I'm 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 an engineer, so we have hypotheses all the time. So okay, hit, hit away. All right, so it's uh, bucket list time. You get to do one more adventure race in your career, anywhere, anytime, and you can race with anybody. Standard team, but um, you can't have raced with them before. So no teammates. So where do you want to go and who do you want to race with? I think some exotic place that I've never been, maybe a a Patagonia or something there where I truly can see epic scenery and views. Uh, To me, that's as rewarding as anything. And, you know, I'm not really a guy that says, ooh, I'm idolizing this racer. But, you know, I kind of grew up as, you know, my heroes were, you know, people like Ian Adamson or, or Mike Closer or Robin Benacasa. So, you know, I think those are the only people that I would name as stars that I would love to race with just for the opportunity. But really, if I was racing in some beautiful place, I'd like to have people that are just like-minded with similar goals to me. So, you know, it could just be Joe Schmo off the street that has similar goals. You know, it doesn't have to be a, you know, a, a well-known racing name or something. Yeah, that's a fair answer. That's quite honestly, half the people were like, "Yeah, I want to race with my friends I've never raced with," and half the people want to race with legends. So right, so. I think I'd piss, pick friends over legends any day. Nothing wrong with the legends, but uh, yeah. you know, I think friends would make the experience even more memorable because you may see these friends again later and be able to reminisce. I don't think one of these legends would be calling me back on a Tuesday afternoon to, to <laughs> chat about it. That's 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 uh, logical thinking. You must be an engineer or something. <laughs> so, um, okay, I haven't asked this question in a long time, so I'm going to ask it again. Uh, the night before you get ready to leave for Primal Quest, are you still packing? Uh, almost certainly, I will <laughs> still be packing something or another. I would say I used to be a feverish packer, unpacker, repacker, unpacker. I do far less of that these days. I, In my early days, I tried to have a piece of gear for every situation, 
now I've really pared down and I just have bare essentials that are multifunctional and I just deal with it. So maybe I don't have the ideal rain jacket with me. What I have is going to have to work. So much, much less than I have in the past. So is that kind of the philosophy where we can go faster, but we're going to, we're going to just, you know, suffer a little bit as opposed to let's take a little extra and slow down. I have spent incredible amounts of money on trying to have the ideal piece of gear for every situation. And now I have these gear boxes full of gear that I hardly ever use. And I still wear out the same kind of tennis shoes all the time and still wear out the same camelback. So I just kind of gave up on all these other things and, you know, just make sure I have my bases covered. That way you're not trying to make the decision of, ooh, which, you know, which pair of gaiters do I bring on this trek? Or, you know, here's five set of trekking poles. I wonder which one will be best. I just kind of got rid of all that. I tried to be much more simplistic. And I think that came from some of my teammates. I would show up with a huge gear bin and they would have all of their gear in a, you know, in a little grocery bag. And I, I, I was laughing at first and then they finished the race right alongside with me and seemed to be just the, the same. So I really gone minimal these days. Yeah. Well, you know, it's what it, it's whatever works for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm no longer a gear junkie hoarder. I, I now truly show up at any race, say a 24 hour race with a standard shopping bag, like one of these reusable polypropylene bags. That's all the gear I bring to any race now is it's got to fit in that one bag, including food and clothes. So it's much simpler to pack. And especially when you're done after a long race, you have one grocery bag to pick up and you're, you're cleaned. Well, that's kind of good. Well, you know, and the other thing that I find is it's like you buy gear now and it's like you never have to buy it again. Yeah. (laughs) Stuff does last a whole lot longer, though. So I I definitely would agree with that. Okay. This is my last question, maybe. Um, Where are you going and what are you going to build next? For work you're talking about? Yeah. When I get back to the work, that's what fascinates me. I'm in I'm in our corporate area right now because we're building a piece of equipment internally and then I think I fly out again next Monday to Germany to go meet with a, a bunch of clients in Germany all of next week so the first week of May so it's a it's a real challenge to get training in now so I'm trying to get a whole bunch of travel in early this year so I can focus on training more heavily this summer. Do you still enjoy traveling? At Times I absolutely do, and when you're gone too much, I absolutely hate traveling. So traveling for work is never the pleasure that most movie or non-travelers think it is. Uh, if you travel, you know this yourself, you know, spending yet another night in a hotel. But I, I will say that I miss it. So if I stay home for three or four weeks in a row, it's like, wow, I need to take a trip somewhere. <laughs> I need to see something. I need to go talk to one of my clients or go see a piece of equipment. So. You know, I, I do I do have some urge to travel. It's just if you've been gone for three weeks, it's just really nice to get home, sleep in your own bed, eat your own food, get back to your own routine. So, yeah, that's I I'm still in that. I think travel is romantic, and it's not. Yeah, it <laughs> it never is. I, I've yet to have a trip, you know, uh, yeah. bar one or two that have been just really wow. This was a great trip. Most of mine are business, and I rarely schedule in pleasure days you know i try to do a little more of that now Um, fortunately as an adventure racer as a runner 
I can usually run in some pretty exciting places. So that's always fun. Yeah. Um, you know, running through the streets of Japan early in the morning or, you know, hiking up a mountain in Brazil or something. Those are always very cool things to do. So, well, it sounds like you've got a good balance between having fun at work and being miserable adventure racing. <laughs> no matter what people say, there's going to be times when you're going to be miserable in an adventure race. So you're yeah. not doing it right if you're not at some point. That's true. So, well, thanks. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for taking some time out. Sure thing, Randy. I enjoyed it. So maybe we'll, maybe I can spend some time with you when we're at Primal Quest and you can tell me more about uh, um, engineering food stuff. Sure thing. I'd be more than happy to. So I guess you'll be out there? Yep, I'm going to be there. So Good, good. We look forward to seeing you. I was in Squamish last week, so it uh, looks like a very neat area to explore. Yeah, I've been. I was there once for mountain bike twenty four hour worlds, but didn't see much other than the ten mile loop we were on. So now, is there is there good mountain biking there? I'm always looking for intel. I mean, can you really bike some of the stuff there? Oh yeah, there's. I mean, there are like really, really, really fun stuff, and then there's that stuff you see in the magazines that we want to stay away from. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I hope Primal Quest uh, biking staff says says the same thing and has the same philosophy. You know, I guess you've certainly seen some of the early statistics they've released, and yeah. you know, how do you get a hundred miles of mountain biking with you know these type of elevation gains? It's got to be uh, pretty epic stuff. Yeah, but I really hope that they, some point in there, they you're on a trail where there's a few, at least mellow stunts. You know, the North Shore. Yeah, I, I, would sus- I would suspect so, just knowing how they've done their races in the past. They they don't seem to be the, hey, let's push it up the steepest mountain you can find. Let's really get some riding in. And those are the things that are going to, you know, to be quite honest, you know, when racers come back with stories of misery, hardly anybody will want to do it. You, racers that come back with incredible journeys of fun things that they did, that's what encourages new people to get into the sport. So, you know, I, hopefully they're looking at this from a business aspect also. It's not the last one, I hope. So, no. you know, the more positive experiences everybody can have. Look at the incredible mountain biking, the beautiful scenes we saw while trekking. That's what attracts new racers. Yeah, and I think uh, Maria and the crew really, they've got that dialed in. So. Yep. I think you're in for an awesome time. Good, good. I hope so. I look forward to meeting you in person there. All right. Well, I got a dog that wants to go out again. Imagine that. I understand. (laughs) Nice nice talking to you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Good night. Bye.
Thank you.